I noticed that uh, a couple of you, when you're reading from the uh, chant sheet, uh, had the chant sheet down in your lap, and this forces you to have your head dipped down. We never, ever want to have our head dipped down. So uh, for this chant and also for the, the regular chant book that um, people use sometimes for uh, regular chanting, you want to hold it up, get it up toward at least your chest. May even can be higher. We'll start this session uh, with a text we've used many times before, but not in the last, uh, I don't know, two and a half years, uh, which is uh, the letters and lectures of Chinese Zen master Da Hui. And the, the, the title of the book is Swampland Flowers. And this is translated by Christopher Cleary. Uh, da Wei is one of the most illustrious of the, uh, especially of the most more recent, <laughs> recent means uh, 13th century, uh, but but recent compared to the Tang masters, the Tang dynasty masters in the 700s and 800s and 900s. Uh, they're the ones we most often read from in, in Taisho. Uh, this this man uh, lived, he was born in 1088, so during his lifetime were the earlier Crusades, uh, oh, I've read this before but not, it didn't stab me the way it does now, the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris was built. And uh, Oxford University was founded, just to give some kind of uh, reference to what was going on over here on the other side of the world. I'm not going to read the biographical material of Da Wei. Uh, it looks from my notes that I did that last April uh, when I read a different section of this book. So I'll just go right into it, but uh, but to say uh, is he's... He's regarded as um, certainly one of the, the greatest Chan masters of the last uh, thousand years. And he's especially known for having reformed the koan system in China. It had deteriorated somehow or other, and uh, that became his claim to fame, as having given new vitality and rigor to the koan system. He's in the Linchi school of Chan. It's the Japanese word for that is the Rinzai school. So the first letter, uh, this letter it says is to a Li Shen Chen, of whom we know, of whom we know nothing. And he begins by quoting the Buddha. He, he, like so many of the masters, they often quoted uh, uh, their predecessors. Buddha said, if you want to know the realm of Buddhahood, enlightenment, you must make your mind as clear as empty space and leave false thinking and all grasping far behind, causing your mind to be unobstructed wherever it may turn. 
The realm of Buddhahood, enlightenment, is not some external world where there is a formal Buddha. It's the realm of the wisdom of an awakened sage. Uh, Just to pick up a couple of phrases here, make your mind as clear as empty space and leave, leave false thinking. Well, it's kind of an it's kind of a uh, redundancy to say false thinking. In terms of the Dharma, all thinking is false. That is, or maybe we should say all thoughting. Uh, thinking has has its place uh, for Zen practitioners as for everyone else. We need to sometimes employ this thinking anal- analytical mind, depending on the kind of work we have before us. So probably when he says false thinking, this means just the the uh, concepts uh, that we have become ingrained in the mind. And Roshi Kepler used to distinguish between thinking, which is a useful thing, and thoughting. Thoughting is just just this kind of random circulating of thoughts through the mind, random, irrelevant thoughts that come and go. It's probably a good way to understand false thinking. And all grasping. That's the big one. Grasping. Craving. And grasping at exalted concepts is no better than other kinds of concepts. So the big the big obstruction is grasping for enlightenment. As long as we have the notion, the idea, the concept of awakening in the mind and we're grasping at it, then uh, we're really obstructing ourselves. It's tough because uh, who wouldn't want to come to awakening? Uh, Some are especially keen to realize this realm that we all, not just not that we all have, but we all are. We are. This is our our true self. This our true mind. This realm of enlightenment. So grasping just is always is self-defeating. That's where the particular practice we're working on uh, is so useful because to the degree that we can be concentrated, absorbed in the breath or the koan we're working on, to that degree we will be free of grasping. It will be free of the thought of enlightenment. The, the absorption in the koan or the breath uh, just squeezes out ideas of awakening. But it takes a lot of work. It takes a great effort to squeeze out those last little flickers of grasping for something. When I say a lot of work, I don't mean necessarily over great stretches of time. It just takes the effort 
to have the practice we're working on uh, completely eclipse everything else in the mind. He continues, you must clear away the stains of afflictions from alien sensations that have been on your mind since beginningless time so that your mind is as broad and open as empty space, detached from all the clinging of the discriminating intellect and your false, unreal, vain thoughts too are like empty space. That is, you you see them as empty. You don't need to uh, oppose them or struggle with them when you see that they're empty. They have no roots to them. The very core self-concept, concept concept of the self, uh, is nothing if we don't make it into something through our attention on it. Then he says, this wondrous, effortless mind will be un- unimpeded wherever it goes. Effortless. It takes a lot of effort to reach effortlessness. But it's within reach of everyone here this week. Don't sell yourself short. Everyone. You must clear away the stains of afflictions from alien sensations. sure what the translator means by alien sensations. Uh, maybe the sensations uh, that we mistakenly think are apart from us, um, but the, the afflictions, the stains of afflictions. Um, wonderful Buddhist word. I find it in my teaching that some of these words speak to me uh, at certain points, and I use them for a while, and because they seem so apt, so expressive, and that's this is one of them. Afflictions, uh, the, the the deeply ingrained afflictions, are the uh, concepts of right and wrong, good and bad, higher and lower. Of course, self and other. That's the key affliction. Progress and regress is another affliction. Notions, ideas. The most deeply ingrained ones are the hardest to see. It just, it's like uh, our own nose or our chin, uh, they're, they're there. 
They're there, but all too often we don't see them. And this is the the process of Zen practice extended over a long time, many years, is gradually starting to notice how we operate out of these conceptual afflictions. In the next letter, I won't continue to read these uh, names of the recipients, these Chinese names. And then in the next letter, the, the translator uh, calls it, gives a little title, mindlessness. But I'm going to use no-mindedness. And there's a, there's a difference, I think, um, that uh, I think mindlessness has a negative connotation. You're, if you're, I, think, I think, generally, when we use the word mindless, we mean uh, just careless, um, distracted, without, without any kind of uh, control, awareness of the mind. But, but instead of that, I'm going to use the word no-mindedness, which, of course, is, is, you're not going to find in any English dictionary, but it's a, it's a great Zen word. No-mindedness means beyond be, the, 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 the mind unencumbered by its ordinary functioning of, of discriminations. Well, he'll have more to say here. Again, he starts by quoting an ancient worthy. To look for the ox, one must seek out its tracks. To practice the way, seek out no-mindedness. Where the tracks are, so must the ox be. The ox, of course, is our true nature, our mind. And then Dawei comments, The path of no-mindedness is easy to seek out. So-called no-mindedness is not being inert and unknowing, like earth, wood, tile, or stone. It means that the mind is settled and imperturbable when in contact with situations and meeting circumstances. That it does not cling to anything, but is clear in all places, without hindrance or obstruction, without being stained, yet without dwelling in the stainlessness, in other words, not being attached to purity, viewing body and mind like dreams or illusions, yet without remaining in the perspective of dreams and illusions, empty nothingness, not getting caught in that side of things. Only when when one arrives at a realm like this can it be called true no-mindedness. If you haven't attained true no-mindedness and just go by the verbal kind, how is this different from the perverted chan of silent illumination? And then uh, here he's using the phrase silent illumination in a pejorative way. 
uh, as a way of criticizing those who who put stillness and quiescence as kind of the ultimate goal without making uh, all too often denying the the validity, the accessibility of awakening. This is uh, Dawei's kind of hallmark, as it is uh, Hakuin, this tremendous emphasis on not just sitting back and um, settling for having this Buddha nature, Awakening to it. Wonderful words here. This no-mindedness meaning the mind is settled, at rest, imperturbable, meaning non-reactive. It's a truly advanced state, especially if you're provoked in any ways that might cause anger to maintain this groundedness, this center where you don't react. And then, now again, he's quoting, he often doesn't say whom he's quoting, but I just, this quotation marks, this first sentence, just get to the root, don't worry about the branches. And then he explains, emptying this mind is the root. Once you get the root, the fundamental, then all kinds of language and knowledge and all your daily activities as you respond to people and adapt to circumstances through so many upsets and downfalls, whether joyous or angry, good or bad, favorable or adverse, these are all trivial matters, the branches if you can be spontaneously aware and knowing as you are going along with circumstances, then there is neither lack nor excess. So here, this is a prescription for how to glide through Sashin. Just moving with a with a non-abiding mind through all the ups and downs and emotional states and other mind states. This is what we get better at uh, over the course of going to many sashins. In our first sashin or two or five, uh, we tend to get thrown by different states of mind. We react to them whether they're favorable or they're unfavorable, uh, we react to them. And then we get carried off into 
this direction or that direction. But when we get more experienced at this, then we just expect, okay, we're, we're going to go through states of mind. It's like weather systems. We know that'll happen during Sashin too. Outside, the weather systems change. It's a very um, dynamic uh, region we live in, in terms meteorologically. But we never have to be concerned if it's you know, whatever the weather is doing, rain or thunder or storms or wind, it'll pass. It's exactly the same with states of mind. And then we, we over time, we acquire the presence of mind to remember that, to know that it doesn't matter what's going on. We may be stalled out in our practice. We may feel flat, bored, uninspired. It's just a state. Don't worry about it. Forget about it. You can think of Sashin or, or just a, a round of sitting. I just, I mentioned Sashin because that's where we are and we do so much sitting. But it doesn't even have to be sitting. It could be out shoveling snow, driving a car, uh, to just have the awareness to discard one state of mind after another. But even that is, is a little misleading because we don't need to do that. We don't need to uh, expel a state of mind because it'll pass on its own and it'll pass all the f- sooner to the degree that we can stay concentrated on the practice of working on. Next letter, <clears throat> Dawei writes, Since you are following this path, then at all times, in your encounters with people and responses to circumstances, you must not let wrong thoughts continue. If you cannot see through them, then the moment a wrong thought comes up, you should quickly concentrate your mental, ener- mental energy to pull yourself away. If you always follow those thoughts and let them continue without a break, not only does this obstruct the path, but it makes you out to be a person without wisdom. Now, I'm going to focus on this paragraph as a way of of, uh, clarifying uh, the the difference, as I understand it, between Zen and Vipassana meditation. In, in Vipassana meditation, what they do is when they notice a thought, they just 
watch the thought until it disappears. Okay, that works. It must work. It's a system that's been practiced for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But what we do is a little differently. It's what Dawei says here. As soon as you notice a thought, you pull yourself away. I would use the words, you redirect. You turn your attention away from the thought back to the practice you're working on. Obviously, they both work, both of these. And, uh, but, uh, when we practice Zen, we don't want to sit and watch the thought until it disappears. It may take quite a while. In the old days, he says, Kweishan asked Lazi An, what work do you do during the 24 hours of the day? The master said, I tend an ox. Kweishan said, how do you tend it? He said, whenever it gets into the grass, I pull it back by the nose. Kweishan said, you're really tending the ox. There it is, just a simple analogy for Zen practice at its simplest. Two steps. You notice the mind has wandered, you redirect. Not try to push the thought out of your mind, not fighting it, resisting it, rejecting it. Just swing your attention back to the breath of the koan. And then the ox will wander off in another direction. And you just do the same thing. Repeat. Redirect. Then Dawei comments, People who follow the path in controlling wrong thoughts should be like Lazian tending his ox. Then, gradually, a wholesome ripening will take place of itself. Gradually. Don't expect immediate success. The mind has become so in, habituated to wandering. We can't expect to train it, retrain it overnight. It takes re- repeated Redirecting over and over again. But it's always just these two steps. Noticing, we can't do anything till we notice. We may be lost in thoughts for the longest time without noticing. But once we notice, then simply back to the practice. Trouble is that too many people, when they notice, instead of just redirecting, they launch into a kind of an inner dialogue about the thought or about oneself and one's inabilities, let's say, 
it's un- not just unnecessary it's it's um it's an impediment no middle step there just noticing redirecting and then in a another letter to an earlier recipient Dawei says, just examine yourself constantly from morning to night. What do you do to help others and help yourself? Notice this. This is now he's shifting into more the, uh, an acknowledgement of what practice is for. It's to help others, which also means helping oneself. You can't really help others without helping yourself or vice versa. What do you do to help others and help yourself? If you notice even the slightest partiality or insensitivity, you must admonish yourself. Don't be careless about this. I think of uh, in Sashin of meals, where um, we can we can lapse into um, habits that uh, are do not reflect uh, seasoned uh, practice of Zen uh, habits of grasping. Um, and of uh, unawareness. I was so struck uh, while in Japan at how when when food is served at the table, uh, no one would dare serve himself or herself before offering it to others. is a completely different orientation. Others. First others. First serve. I'm not saying that we have to copy this, although it could be a useful exercise that some people might want to do. Grabbing at the food uh, reinforces this habit of grasping. Doesn't have to be. Can just be practical. Maybe other people are serving themselves and their hands are are full. They're busy. So sure, serve yourself. But it, you notice, and I'm speaking from that experience in Japan. You notice that it alters your mind. When you, when you don't follow the instinct to serve yourself first and instead offer it to the person on your left or your right. He says, if you, this, this, if you notice even the slightest partiality or insensitivity, 
what he what he translates always remember these are translations and translations uh, there are there are choices a translator makes uh, the same material another translator uh, made if there's even the slightest uh, self-interest instead of partiality um, or we could say uh, egotism self-centeredness that's a, that's that's a good one self-centeredness uh, in the announcements that were read uh, here in the zendo last night one of them was coming when coming in from the early morning outdoor kinhin to not stop in the doorway uh, but to just step just in and just to the right or to the left so that other people can get in <coughs> could be just as as uh, trivial as that not any kind of malice or or intentional self-centeredness but just Lack of awareness. I see this sometimes when I'm driving through the parking lot of, uh, say, Wegmans, and and uh, people are walking right down the middle of the aisle. So the, it's, there's not enough room. You have to wait while they trudge along, lost in thoughts, instead of getting over to the right or over to the left. I see this all the time. And even in the aisles of a supermarket where people will stop their carts, where it's blocking traffic. There's a saying in Japan, uh, watch your back. And it doesn't mean what it means in Italy. Uh, (laughs) It means be aware of what's behind you and around you. Don't be so self-absorbed that you lose awareness of others. Same with uh, making noise during sashin. Another, f- another awareness practice. Be aware of when you might be making unnecessary noise that would be dis- disturbing other people. Be mindful of how you close doors and close drawers and where you blow your nose or any of those things. Well, we covered that last night. It's also about uh, some people have a tendency to hoard cushions. It's not and not very common. I don't mean to suggest that, but every once in a while, someone will take six uh, thin, uh, the sick the thin square cushions, and other people have none. All of these things, all of these things are are practice. This is Zen practice. Being aware. And then uh, Dawei tells a story, a famous story. In the old days, Chan Master Dao Lin lived up in a tall pine tree. 
People of the time called him the bird's nest monk. I'm just going to paraphrase here. When uh, a certain government minister, important government, government minister, think of someone in, I don't know, the cabinet, the president's cabinet, uh, also a commander of, of uh, military forces, this important man made a special trip to the mountain to visit this bird's nest monk. And he looked up at the uh, master there up in the branch, in the branch of the tree, and he said, uh, It's very dangerous where you're sitting, Chan Master. The master said, My danger may be very great, minister, but yours is even greater. And then the minister said, I am commander of Jintang. What danger is there? And the master had the temerity to say, When the passions burn and the mind is unsteady, how can you not be in danger? This takes took great courage to address this minister. So so much of society society was ranked was was ordered on the basis of rank, and this government minister would have seen himself as far beyond this master. Well, maybe not far, because he went to visit him. This is a point that we can, each one of us, can consider. When our passions burn and the mind is unsteady, how can we not be in danger? The minister said, what is the overall meaning of the Buddhist teaching? And the master said, avoid harm, practice the many virtues. Uh, avoid wrong. That's our current uh, translation of, of the first of the three general resolutions. We used to say to avoid evil. Now we say avoid wrong. Avoid wrong, practice the many virtues. Uh, then the government minister said, well, even a three-year-old child could say this. It's so simple. And the master said, though a three-year-old child can say it, even an 80-year-old man cannot carry it out. And then the minister bowed and departed. The point being that the simplest things can be the most difficult the, the most fundamental ways of conducting oneself in a suitable way, a way that doesn't cause harm to others. This is a practice that probably can never completely master, can never completely master the precepts, but we do our best to to avoid causing harm. And it comes back to what Da Wei was saying earlier, is to, to not succumb to self-centeredness or uh, unawareness, self, self-absorption.
And then he follows this up. Dawei follows up the story by saying, now, if you want to save mental power, do not be concerned with whether or not a three-year-old child can say it or whether or not an 80-year-old man can carry it out. He's warning him, don't dwell in, in this. Don't get caught in this story. Don't dwell in any words of some previous wise person. Just avoid wrong, and you have mastered these words. They apply whether you believe or not, so please think it over. They apply whether you believe or not. Because it's the truth. You don't have to believe in it. It's just the way it is. Let's stop now and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to benefit the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain.